for great-looking T-shirts, hoodies, and sweatshirts. The TNT Shop is now open at TNTradio.live. Unleashing the Beast. Mark Morano is unleashed on today's News Talk Radio, TNT. Welcome to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. What do you do when you're an organization that's being roundly rejected by the public around the world? The World Economic Forum. You're in Davos. You have your weekly meeting. You have some of your invited guests, the president of Argentina, the Heritage Foundation, all trashing you. You have public opinion polls showing how out of step the ruling class elite are with people. You have people mocking and ridiculing you for your private jets, for your climate hypocrisy. You have people who want nothing to do with your agenda. You have uprisings in the Netherlands, in Germany, and now France from farmers against your entire Great Reset agenda. Well, there's only one thing you can do, and that's cast a magic spell you bring in the witches and that's exactly what davos did this past week in switzerland at the world economic forum and hold on I got, i'm just getting word tnt has exclusive video well it may not be exclusive but tmt has obtained video of the witch of the magic spells at davos on the main stage let's take a look uh, clip Na, no Camarro Anuri, no Camai, no Camuacá, na Anuri, no Yuyuá, na Wahon, Xinambu, Punk, e tu Xinam, Xaval aqui, Xinambu, Kikirani, Tsan, Xavai, Kirani, Tsan, Makikirani. Awa, Mawa, Nanã, Awa, Mawa, Nanã, no Mawa, no Wai, Wai, Xarai. We're back. Well, you will own nothing and be happy. You will own nothing and be happy. Will it work? Will this kind of effort to literally cast a magic spell work to bring the public around, to get your agenda back on track? I don't know, but I gotta tell you something. When you see the coughing in people's faces, and this is a few years after the alleged COVID pandemic, worse than everything, and she's coughing in everyone's face. That just seems, how come they're not wearing masks? K95 mask. They should be masked up. They should make sure they have all their boosters because they got some uh, uh, Brazilian witch doctor coughing and sneezing, coughing in their face. Anyway, that's just a little snippet of what goes on at the World Economic Forum. And we have much bigger snippets of what goes on at the World Economic Forum. Uh, okay, let's start. We have clip one, John Kerry. Uh, is lamenting, now just, just to give you a little background on this, John Kerry's lamenting about the lengthy environmental process for green energy, for solar and wind, particularly offshore wind, uh, and even EVs. Like, you know, why can't we just do what we need to to save the planet? When all the other forms of energy and also construction and development have to follow these, these strict environmental regulations, particularly in the West, or actually almost exclusively in the West. 
So what John Kerry's complaining about is he wants you to forget about whales. He wants you to forget about offshore wind and all the, you know, in fact, most of green energy does have that bypass. I mean, wind, wind energy is allowed to kill rare apex predator birds. Uh, whereas if it was an oil development or any kind of fossil fuel development, it would be shut down immediately for environmental concerns. So here's John Kerry complaining, clip one. We have a Congress that regrettably has not been able to reach agreement to uh, get the permitting sped up to create a statutory requirement for time frame. I am not for throwing out, uh, you know, all environmental consideration mm -hmm. and having a NEPA or whatever kind of evaluation, but I'm not for taking five years to do it. Mm -hmm. And I'm not for having five to ten years of litigation that ties you up so it's impossible to attract the capital and it becomes that much more expensive and so forth. And there you have it. He just wants he wants all these barriers out of the way. And it reminds me of the UN climate chief, Justin Trudeau, and many others who just said, you know, it's the messiness of democracy. We just need to get our agenda imposed. We need to get those solar and wind to replace fossil fuels. We need to get our climate agenda implemented. That's why we don't like democracy. It's so messy, as Christina Figueres, the former UN climate chief, said. And these enlightened men, as Tom Friedman, the New York Times said, can just do what's right. They just want to get it done, bypass everything, and they'll probably get their way. Okay, this is a shout out to um, uh, Rebel News uh, confronting John Kerry. I believe this is um, uh, this is what's his name from Australia. Their Rebel News reporter. It'll say uh, I'll, I'll remember it here in a second. They confronted Kerry on the streets of Davos. Rebel News, again, run by Ezra Levant, fantastic news shop. I said they should win every journalistic award possible. They're the only ones doing real journalism in Davos at this World Economic Forum. Let's go to clip two. You can hear John Kerry confronted by Rebel News. What's the carbon footprint of these events every single year that you come here? You think it's worth it? Peasants pay for your crimes? That's a stupid question. Is it, a, is it really? Is it, is, it, is it more stupid than you traveling here to tell us? Please, I'm, sorry? We're done. We're done. We are done now. You don't grab me. You can't grab us. This is a free society, mate. This is, we have freedom of the press. Why do you think you're more important? Your carbon footprint doesn't matter, but everybody else around the world suggested that. Nobody ever suggested that. Don't make up stupid questions. Being here suggests that. A stupid question. You being here every single year and doing this suggests that. And and I have done a huge amount. Listen, now it's finished. Please. Why can't I ask him questions? Please. Who are you? Why are you trying to bully me out of us? No, so please. That, that doesn't. A lot of people say no to a lot of the policies and agendas he pushes. They don't get a choice. So why can't we ask him a question in a public space? Can you not touch me? Can you not touch me? That was uh, Avi Yemeni from Rebel News. I believe he's Rebel News Australia, and they all they all met up in Davos, the Rebel News team. I love how John Kerry is just so indignant. I mean, that was probably the only challenging question. He, and it wasn't even a challenging question. I mean, it's, it's the answer is obvious. Uh, but I just love his aide getting all upset. It reminds me of my days with Rush Limbaugh, the TV show, when the aides would try to cut off the interview when they didn't like the way the questions were going. Okay, this is also Rebel News clip. This is a fun clip, less than a minute, about 45 seconds, confronting BlackRock's vice chairman at Davos at the World Economic Forum, clip three. 
Have you guys decided to back away from ESG? Larry Fink said he's reconsidered it. What do you think? No, I have to go to my next meeting. I'm oh, walk and talk with you. Yeah, yeah, excuse me. Do you, do you like really running? Now, Larry Fink uh, yeah, yeah. really went deeply into yeah. ESG. What do you think? Do you think the ESG puts yeah. politics ahead of shareholder value? Thank you. Take care. Thank you. You're a rock star here, BlackRock. You're a celebrity. You guys run the show here. How much of an emphasis do you put on cultural Marxism and ESG as opposed to shareholder value? I mean, shouldn't Larry Fink do his politics with his own money and just focus on building value for shareholders with BlackRock's money? I mean, I love this. These are the only hostile questions these guys are going to get. The media that goes has to pay somewhere $25,000, $30,000 to get credentialed. And after you pay them, not only do you have to pay the money, but the World Economic Forum has to approve you personally. So that's why Rebel News is out in the streets, because they weren't approved to cover any of the actual events, conferences, speeches inside the stage where the stage where the actual agenda is going on. They have to get people in the street. And every single one of these people you're seeing them run down deserves these kind of questions because at just as a cosmic balance of things. All right, and here's the next one. This is clip four. The CEO of Bill Gates Foundation gets confronted outside the conference in the streets again of Davos, Switzerland by Rebel News. I love this clip as well, clip four. Can I ask you a few questions about the foundation? No, unfortunately uh, I'm running late for something. Well, I'll walk with you. Uh, no, one of the criticisms is Bill Gates is sort of a master of the universe, but he's not elected at all. But, but he exerts a lot of power. How do you feel about that? Isn't it a little undemocratic? Is Melinda still involved with the foundation even after the divorce? That I did not like uh, that he'd had meetings with Jeffrey Epstein. How many times did Bill Gates actually visit Epstein? I've seen estimates that it was in the dozens. Is that true? Why is it that Bill Gates is out free when others who were involved with Epstein are being prosecuted, like even Prince Andrew's in trouble. How did Bill Gates manage to escape? What was Bill Gates' involvement in the simulation for a worldwide pandemic just months before COVID-19? Has he ever explained that? Wow, that was Ezra Levant himself asking the questions. I just want to say journalistic awards should be given to Rebel News. They are on top of it to have. I guarantee you in the history of Bill Gates Foundation, his his the president of the foundation, uh, the CEO has never been asked any of those kind of questions. In fact, the closest I can even think of was when Peter Flaherty, who I had on TNT radio uh, uh, about a year ago, maybe I don't know what it was now, a year and a half ago. He went to a, uh, a meeting where he with, with um, where he confronted the shareholders uh, of uh, what's his name uh, the, the the Midwest uh, media maven. He went to the meeting, asked about Bill Gates, Jeffrey Epstein, and this was at a shareholder meeting of one of the largest financial organizations, and he was literally swept out of the room and arrested, fingerprinted, handcuffed put in jail. And he was a shareholder. Peter Flaherty was a shareholder. This was Berkshire Hathaway uh, meeting. And he was actually talking to Warren Buffett directly. 
And he was, but he was after he got shut, question got shut down about Bill Gates, Jeffrey Epstein connection, and he was immediately taken and arrested. And he's actually doing a lawsuit now. I mean, this was, and Warren Buffett has never come out and apologized or anything saying this shouldn't have happened. Why would you be arrested for a shareholder who had the microphone, was recognized for asking a question? Even okay, if it's an inappropriate question, if you think that, how does that mean arrest? And it's insane. So, that is what uh, has been going on. Again, Rebel News, fantastic. I got a couple more clips, which I'll show you tomorrow. We'll do a little bit more unpacking of some of the things that happened at Davos this past week. Uh, it's wrapping up now. I may have already finished by the time you see this. Uh, and this is a. these are the most dangerous meetings in the world because as I wrote in my book, The Great Reset, you have millionaires, billionaires, royal families, uh, presidents, prime ministers, bureaucrats, CEOs um, and mid-level cabinet and government officials and Hollywood celebrities all coming together to collude about above the, any public scrutiny except for Rebel News. And what they've done is if they, if you had to have, say you were uh, you know a big lobbyist and a CEO of a company and you wanted to go meet with governors or you were lo had your lobbyists go and you wanted to meet with state legislators or senators or congress, you would have to do it in at least some form of disclosure out in the open. You'd have to do it with disclosures out in the open. There'd be scrutiny. You go to Davos and hey, you can do whatever you want and you can have a great time. And no one is going to be any of the wiser, or at least that's the way it's been. But it's still a closed thing. I mean, even Rebel News could not get inside. But it's always amazing what they say. They say the quiet parts out loud. And that's what I've always been impressed is how willing they are to do that. Okay. The other thing going on, and I will probably be getting down to this DC trial. This is the Mark Stein, Michael Mann climate trial of the century. Mark Stein, Mark. Mark Stein is being sued by Michael Mann for defamation for his 2012, like, can you believe it, 12 years, I think 2011 or 12 article. And I wanted to play, what's happened here is Anna Fellow-Macular, who I hope to get on the show, hired actors to portray the entire court. So every day they have the court transcript and actors recreate it. Because remember, this is U.S. courthouse, no photos, no audio, no video at least at this level, certain trials can have it. So they need act, they don't have that. So they have actors recreating it. So we're gonna play you clip five. This is Mark Stein, the conservative commentator, my friend who I just think is fantastic. This is his opening statement as played by an actor portraying Mark Stein because we have no actual record, you know, no actual audio video is only court transcripts available of what transpired. So let's play clip five. This is Mark Stein the opening his defense against Michael Mann in the climate lawsuit in D.C. Superior Court. I apologize for being foreign, and I apologize for being unable to stand up. I'm a Canadian on his last legs. I have difficulty standing, but I have no difficulty standing on the truth. The truth of what I wrote, the truth about what happened at a famous American institution, the truth about this man. To modify a famous line from an American courtroom drama, I think you can handle the truth. In my world, I can write something, Mr. Simberg can write something, and Mr. Mann can write something. And you're free to read all or none and decide what weight to attach to all or none. But in Mr. Mann's world, there's his take and everyone else has to be hockey-sticked into submission and silence. I'd be inclined to suggest that's a little un-American. 
But as I said, I'm a foreigner, so it probably isn't for me to say what is or isn't American. Wow. I mean, what a beautiful opening statement. He continues. This is uh, Mark Stein. Uh, this is going to be uh, clip six. Uh, Mark Stein continuing his opening statement. Shorter clip. Michael Mann does this all day, every day on social media, discriminating against, harassing and bullying anybody who disagrees with him. Colleagues, other NAS members, interested members of the public, as you will hear from witnesses. He is one of the most vicious blowhards on Twitter, and tweeting is what he does. So relentlessly, it doesn't appear to leave much room for any science. He doesn't stop for public holidays. Uh, and, and by the way, what a great expression to describe Michael Mann, UN scientist, former Penn State, caught up in climate gate as a, just a blowhard. I mean, that's exactly what he is. He's just a Democrat Party activist would be the simplest way to put it. And it's like this really smug, arrogant. I just can't even imagine his own supporters. I mean, he has a small section of people who would cheer it on uh, because of who he is. But just this, his style of communication. Anyway. A lot of fun there, utter and complete uh, trash. So that trial, they're talking, and one of the things Mar uh, Michael Mann has done is he's trying to stop Steve McIntyre and Ross McKittrick from testifying. And at this trial, at the center of the defense for uh, for Mark Stein basically implying that Michael Mann uh, was engaging in fraudulent science, was the validity of this hockey stick temperature graph. We've talked about this many times on this TNT on my show here. We've talked about how they're now, you know, how we had scientists when, when I worked in the U.S. Senate Environment Public Works Committee come testify that other U.N. scientists wanted to get rid of the global medieval warm period so they could show global warming much worse. And then a few years after that, bam, they got rid of the medieval warm period. Now there's a whole movement afoot. Heat waves were about 10 times worse. The heat wave index by the U.S. Environment EPA, Environmental Protection Agency, in the U.S. under Joe Biden's EPA, heat waves were 10 times worse than they are now. That's very inconvenient. We already have professors now publicly stating we have to get rid of the 1930s heat wave records in the data. And they will. And that's what Michael Mann is doing. That's the scientists working on this right now. They're going to cool the 1930s to make them look not bad. And then pretty soon, anyone who says, hey, you think this heat wave is bad? Look back. All the state records were set before 1955. The heat waves in the 1930s were 10 times worse. You know what the response is going to be? No, they're not. Look at the data. Well, wait a minute. What happened to the data? They changed. We, we revised the past. We made some adjustments. We fixed it for you. We smoothed it out. And everyone's like, huh? And that's how they did it. They did the same thing with the global warming pause. It was going on like 18 years. So what'd they do? They went to, they went in and adjusted the data. They went back in time. You know, so we underestimated the Arctic warmth. And by the way, the, the, not, only did, not only is the global warming temperature pause over, it never existed. Oh, okay. Believe me, Associated Press, Seth Moore, people jumped on that. They didn't even question it for a second. There was like a cheering, like, yay, skeptics talking point taken away. This is the climate battle. It's just, it's silliness. You know, I, I used to get really worked up and into it all. At this point, it's just so grinding uh, and just so predictable. And as I said, everything I knew, everything I learned Everything I saw firsthand in COVID and witnessed, lived through, I'd already witnessed for two decades watching and observing and being part of the climate debate. Uh, so anyway, all right, one final clip here. This is the JP Morgan CEO, Jamie Dimon, uh, talking, and this was a shock on CNBC, 
about how Trump was right about so many things and the Democrats had better stop polarizing the country. Now, this is a key clip because it shows that corporate CEOs, and D Jamie Dimon's no conservative. I mean, he's the one that wanted to use eminent domain for green energy and you know, everything it takes to impose uh, the green agenda. But he's finally, this is a signal to CEOs that the CEOs are willing to talk and that Trump is not verboten. Uh, clip seven. We've got this great hand, but when people say MAGA, they're actually looking at people voting for Trump and they think they're voting, and they're basically scapegoating them that you are like him. Uh, and, but I don't think they're voting for Trump because of his family values. And if you look, just take a step back, be honest. He was kind of right about NATO, kind of right about immigration. Mm -hmm. He grew the economy quite well. China, Trade, China ta virus. Tax reform worked. Mm -hmm. He was right about some of China. I don't, I don't like no, what he did. No, I said China virus. Yeah, I understand. When he, when yeah. he may have been right. He, he, and I don't like how he said things about I Mexico. I don't like, but he wasn't wrong about some of these critical issues. And that's why they're voting for him. And, and I think people should be a little more respectful of our fellow citizens. And when you guys have people up here, you should, have, you should always ask the why. Not like it's a binary thing. You're supporting right. Trump. You're not supporting Trump. Why are you supporting Trump? It's hard to Trump? hate 75 million of your fellow Americans. And it's, I, I agree. It's done quite and, you know, the it. Democrats have done a pretty good job with the deplorables, but, hugging onto their Bibles and their beer and their guns. I mean, really? Like, can we just stop that stuff and actually grow up and treat other people with respect and listen to them a little bit? Jimmy, and, and I do think the economy will affect. And I think this this negative talk about MAGA is going to hurt Biden's election campaign. Wow. That is Jamie Dimon, CEO, J.P. Morgan, just laying it out there. That's interesting. And, you know, most of these businesses want Donald Trump back. It would benefit the economy wildly here in the United States, the deregulatory aspects of it, but also the freedom aspects of it. He would start dismantling so much of this agenda. What's hopefully he's learned his lesson and would dismantle the public health as much as possible, start dismantling that. Um, although I think, especially there's rumor that Trump, he's being advised to pick Vivek, Rama, Vivek Ramaswamy as his vice president. So we shall see. All right. We'll be right back. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. TNT's Bruce de Torres. The Who's proposed treaty will increase man-made pandemics by Merrill Nass. Just a minute about this. This report is designed to help readers think about some big topics. How to really prevent pandemics and biological warfare. How to assess proposals by the WHO and its members for responding to pandemics. And whether we can rely on our health officials to navigate these areas in ways that make sense and will help the population. populations. We start with the history of biological arms control and rapidly move to the COVID pandemic, eventually arriving at plans to protect the future. She didn't put protect in quotes. But I just did verbally. World Stage and Bruce DeTorres on today's News Talk TNT. God's truth is enduringly true throughout all the generations. It transcends culture. The church is always going to be an embattled people. If it's swimming with the tide, it's not being the church of Jesus Christ. Look to the past, learn from the past because the whole world lies in the power of the evil one.
China has more than 200 confirmed cases of coronavirus, it's called. The entire state of California ordered to stay at home. That's 40. California has some of the strictest policies leveled against churches. Gavin Newsom's executive order threatens jail time and a thousand dollar a day fine. Government stopping people from going to church, Dr. Fauci. When I went into the White House, when I sat in on the task force meetings, was a shocking level of gross incompetence. The mortality rate from the virus was 0.2%, near 99.8% survival, rather than the 3 or 4% mortality that the, the people were saying at the time. The culture and the understanding of the people of Grace Church has always been, not only do you obey government, but you honor government. Thousands of people in the streets, but you can't have church. The hypocrisy of letting people riot it helped us all understand one thing. This is not what they say it is. By meeting, we're testifying the government has no jurisdiction here. I was arrested and driven to a maximum security prison. The government has obviously uh, turned up the heat on churches. My daddy. <laughs> when the churches fall silent, the only religion left is the state. We needed to make a biblical statement because we always put ourselves under the authority of the Word of God. LA County threatened Pastor John MacArthur with jail time and arrest. We were going to be sued. They wanted Grace Church shut down. We wanted to go on the offensive and attack the health order as unconstitutional. This wasn't about health and safety. This was all about control and opposition to religious freedom. As the government gets more corrupt and more corrupt, snitches get rewards. Its totalitarian control has to increase. You have to have a mask on. And as they shut down any attacks against them, this is not about freedom or personal choice. The last thing standing is going to be the church. On the air 24-7, your news talk giant, TNT. Welcome back to Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. All right. Joining us in just a few minutes will be Dr. Calvin Kem, a nuclear engineer, nuclear physicist from South Africa. And he's here actually in the U.S., uh, on a speaking tour and doing a lot of meetings. He has been a climate skeptic. He's an energy realist. He's been battling the climate agenda uh, going back decades. I first met him in, uh, I want to say Johannesburg, but no, it was Durban, South Africa at the 2011 United Nations Climate Summit. And we had, uh, that was a a huge summit. That was the one where he and Lord Moncton parachuted in along with Craig Rucker from CFAC. And they parachuted uh, as a stunt and then, you know, landed on a beach and we got covered by the media. And what happened was we were always the skeptical team. And that's what we always were at these events. And this was back in the days when you could actually get UN conference rooms, UN press conferences. You could be on the UN agenda. Uh, that hasn't happened for quite a while. You could be interviewed by UN United Nations TV during these summits. Now they barely tolerate us when they're not throwing us out, when they're not arresting us. In fact, you got to remind me, since we've been talking all about this, I want to show the clips of when I got actually arrested, armed UN climate cops. Um, I will send you, I will show that in a future show. But anyway, uh, that's where I met him. He has spent his career trying to nuclefy, that's probably not a word, but adding nuclear energy 
to the world uh, from improving nuclear energy in Russia, which he says has come a long way, improving nuclear energy throughout Africa, advocating for nuclear energy in the United States. He's been part of the nuclear regulatory, um, not US, but the, the version in Africa and uh, advisor to these nuclear regulatory bodies, uh, pushing nuclear energy, trying to get the world to go nuclear because it's really one of the greatest, it's the most pro-science forms of energy you could ever develop. So we'll we'll get into all that and ask him about that. And the other thing I was going to mention, there's a lot of uh, breaking news. And I, when I get down to this Mark Stein, Michael Mann trial, I hope to get uh, some interviews. I don't know if Mark Stein himself is doing interviews right now, because I think, you know, he's probably waiting till after the trial. But I hope to get you some of that people. We've already had Bill Nye, the science guy, actually showed up at the trial uh, and they're now saying it's a form of jury intimidation or jury influencing because he came and said hi to the newly seated jury on the trial last week. And I know there were people there very upset about that. Bill Nye actually went to the courthouse. And then, of course, Bill Nye uh, today, and I may cover this tomorrow if I get the video. I got to get the video of this. Bill Nye is doing a uh, the doomsday clock. For some reason, they brought him in as the spokesman for the doomsday clock. So yes, Bill Nye, the science guy, the alleged science guy, uh, is now the end is nigh as Bill Nye is pushing it. And one of the funniest things about the whole idea of the doomsday clock, it's just run by a bunch of left-wing climate activists, you know, it's blah, 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 it's boring. But he actually said the way we can turn this clock back and prevent the climate catastrophe for Americans and others is to vote the right way. So they actually think you can go to the ballot box, vote for some candidate, and the weather and climate is going to improve, and we're not going to have some catastrophic, uh, you know, bad weather event because of the way people voted, and Florida won't be half underwater. It's really, it's just, it's. When I, when I first did the series of events with Bill Nye, you know, it was 2012, my debate on CNN with uh, Piers Morgan. And then I was on John Stossel, debated Pier, uh, with, with Bill Nye. And then I did an interview him for my film. And then, you know, it turned into what he considered a debate, but I was there to interview him, not, I was, I was worried, I was just trying to get him on topics and stuff. But it was a three times that I've met him and gone through all that. Uh, and it was a different era. The last time I saw him was 2016. It's just the climate debate. It's, just, it's almost just so laughable now. I mean, it's almost buffoonery. Whereas before it, they would actually try. Remember, I've done the analysis where Al Gore's film, if you go back to that time frame, actually it was a serious movie compared to anything they're talking about today. I mean, he was talking about sea level rise, carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. He was talking about, you know, carbon taxes. And he was talking about, you know, polar bears. Well, fast forward now, the entire climate debate is about uh, we have to ban gas stoves, ban gas-powered cars, stop eating meat. Uh, Al Gore would always say it's entrepreneurial. We don't need the regulations. It's just about investing. Al Gore was more trying to just cash in, make money, he and his friends, all the companies. He may have been a true, true believer, and he is, but he never got caught up in that. Now, he's evolved. He's gone along with it. He's now talking about, you know, identity politics and white supremacy cause of global warming. And he's jumped in all of that stuff. And that, But it's just amazing how insane the science world has been corrupted just in the last 15 years and really in the last seven years. I mean, in terms of being mainstream, this, these elements have always existed, but only on the fringes. Now it's mainstream. 
Uh, and it's just study after study, you know, house plants cause uh, global warming. And I won't bring out the house plants because uh, I think it, well, I'm having some fun here. It's digitizing the screen. It looks horrible. Uh, we tried that with the big plant. And I guess I, I looked like I was coming out of a, uh, uh, you know, a digital monster machine. So uh, anyway, so it'll be interesting to see where this trial comes. You got Bill Nye. Now Michelle Bachman has come by at the trial. And I believe Richard Lindzen is going to be testifying in person. I believe Judith Curry. I'm hopeful that Steve McIntyre and Ross McKittrick will also be uh, attending this trial because uh, despite what Michael Mann is trying to do, he's trying to literally get them and just boot them out by saying, you know, basically he says, how dare you call me and my scientific work, which he's known for the hockey stick, a fraud. And then Mark Stein's like, okay, you can sue me for defamation, but I'll bring in the experts who can prove that you committed fraud. And Michael Mann's like, no, 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 no. we don't want those two coming here. They're not allowed. Blah, blah, blah. And I love it because they're like, well, they're not. They're they they're uh, you know, they're they're not part of the peer review process. These were outside independent experts, and Steve McIntyre will blow you away with his statistical knowledge. Uh, and Ross McKittrick is phenomenal as well. And they, together, when they dismantled Michael Mann, there is no way he ever wants to be face-to-face -face with them. And as I mentioned, Michael, Michael Mann is scheduled to be face-to-face -face with Mark Stein during cross-examination of this trial. Uh, and I still think there's going to be a million ways Michael Mann's going to say he wants to do it remotely. Michael Mann's going to want to do it via written. I just can't imagine Michael Mann consenting without the greatest fight ever put up by a uh, plaintiff in a case uh, to avoid having to testify. Okay. Uh, a couple developments there. This may be why we'll be open the show about the witchcraft. Well, one of the reasons the World Economic Forum and Davos and the whole Great Reset agenda is pushing this idea of uh, you know, witchcraft and magic spells and trying to get their energized, their whole movement, is because so much of this agenda is now meeting with resistance. And I'm not talking about even legislative, I'm just talking about the public. And as I mentioned, there's farmer protests in France, farmer protests in Germany, farmer protests in the Netherlands, Sri Lanka has overrun the presidential palace. We have the same thing going on, although policies now being implemented in Australia, Canada. I'm hopeful that we'll see rebellion there. And of course, John Kerry, as the climate envoy in the U.S., has now targeted U.S. agriculture. So U.S. agriculture is now, so I'm, I'm thinking we had tractors descend on Washington in 1979 to protest federal agricultural policy. It might be time for more farmers to come on in. Well, my headline at Climate Depot is on this whole theme that we opened up the show with today. Is the European Union dropping net zero? The biggest political party in the EU now wants to drop the ban on gas and diesel cars. Remember, this was fait accompli. We had things like BBC a few years ago, 2021, saying like, it's not a question of when, but if, you know, airline travel will have to be you know, canceled and, and car and travel. I mean, they, they, this is like the mainstream organs are pushing this. And suddenly something that looked so inevitable is not inevitable. Uh, this is, uh, what a backflip. This is according to Joe Nova uh, from the Net Zero Watch. How much more could car levels and gas heads the European Union take? The EU declared all petrol diesel cars will be banned by 2035 in, in February 2023. It was their star policy for the Net Zero push. Car makers would have to cut their emissions by shocking 55% and unthinkable 100% by 2035. 
And so now the the backlash begins. The voter backlash. How much more? Um, this was the uh, this was a uh, the biggest EU, the European People's Party, the EPP, uh, a center right party. But the, you know, remember in Europe, the the conservatives or right wingers are all in on net zero. It's just kind of a pathetic thing. And of course, there's a whole movement in the U.S. led by Congressman Curtis in Utah, led by people like Nikki Haley and Mitt Romney. And these couple of Republican groups who want us to be like, we want to be for, for climate solutions, climate's a problem. Kevin McCarthy, that's why I was so happy to see him booted out of Washington. Um, and anyway, that's that's a big development there with the with the uh crushing blow of the uh you know, the finally European people are fighting back. And oddly, it may have something to do with the Ukraine war because of all the energy stress uh that not because oh there was a war but because the pipeline was blown up because all the sanctions against russia and then all the european prices went up they had to force get rid of a lot of the net zero to start with there and then the idea of a car ban coming too i think it's just hopefully the people are going to push back push back and push back uh, i want to read you this french uh farmer story this is huge french farmers are revolting against taxes Price pressure and green regulations, new Macron government quickly caves into demands. This is Gateway Pundit by Paul Saran. In a move reminiscent of the protests in Germany, French farmers blocked roads in parts of the country and in a move convincing enough to put the fragile new Emmanuel Macron government to rapidly cave to their demands. Uh, and it goes on. Reuters News is reporting that the uh, that they, they, they couldn't settle for words. France's largest farm union they they wanted action, not words. We told him that to build confidence, he needed to go to the field. He committed meeting farmers in the field in the coming days. So the French farmers are the same grievances shared all across Europe. It's the escalating taxes, crippling green regulation, and of course all the price pressures that puts. They can't make a profit. Food inflation is through the roof. And the idea that we're wrestling with, well, we've got to cut uh, nitrogen oxide. We've got to go after fertilizer. We have to go after methane. And the farmers aren't even surviving. They're literally trying to collapse plentiful food. It's nuts. It's bonkers. And it needs to be stopped. All right. We've got to take a break. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano on TNT. We'll be right back after these messages. She used to dance and dream of a better life, a brighter future, with nutritious food to eat, a chance to learn, to get an education, and do incredible things. Today, thanks to Children International and friends like you, she dances for the world. Together, we give children in poverty a chance to set their sights high and achieve their dreams by ensuring that they have access to health care, education, life skills, and more so they can grow, thrive, and believe in themselves. Gracias. Gracias. Learn more about Children International and join us in our life-changing work at children.org today. As a combat wounded veteran, I know how hard it is to come home and build a meaningful life. When I was in Iraq, our vehicle was hit. A rocket propelled grenade exploded right under my seat. Traumatic brain injury, a fractured pelvis, severe burns. They didn't think I was gonna make it. I had to learn to walk again and live with the scars, both visible and invisible. 
DAV helps veterans like LaToya get the benefits they've earned. They help more than a million veterans every year in life-changing ways. With DAV on my side, I was able to pursue my dreams. If my story can touch a heart, it can change a life. My victory is overcoming my wounds so I can help other veterans. LaToya Lucas, may your victories inspire many more. Support more victories for veterans. Go to DAV.org. From economics to the woke agenda, this is Unleashed with Mark Morano on today's News Talk, TNT Radio. Welcome back to Unleashed on TNT, Mark Morano. All right, well, joining us now is nuclear physicist, Dr. Calvin Kem. Uh, welcome to the program, uh, Dr. Kem, and uh, ha- happy to have you here in the United States. Welcome, uh, Mark, and I'm very pleased to be here. Thank you for the invitation. And uh, I'm here in this freezing Washington, D.C. at the moment, which for me is unusual. There's snow all over the place, but it's a certain uh, difference from Pretoria, I must say. Yeah, now that's where you are. You're South African. You were born there and you live in Pretoria. Tell us a little bit about your background and how you came to be so interested in nuclear power and uh, and your history in in that in that region, even in terms of uh, your advising of Russia, I understand. Okay, well, I've got a, a PhD in nuclear physics. I'm a nuclear physicist. I'm the past chairman of the South African Nuclear Authority. Uh, and um, so I've been doing all of that. I'm now the chairman of Stratic Global, which is a company in Pretoria uh, wanting to build a private small modular reactor in Pretoria and then hopefully export them all over the world. Um, South Africa was the first country in the world that started on a commercial small modular reactor that was 30 years ago now. And so there's a long pedigree and it's evolved into what we have today. And uh, that's what we want to do. I've been around the world to various places, having given uh, guest presentations in London and Paris and Moscow and Hanoi and Stockholm and Windhoek and a number of places like that, including out in the bush in South Africa, tribal meetings where you are meeting with the chickens running around and so on. So I've been around giving talks and seeing all sides of life. Wow. Um, tell us, when you say modular reactor, so, so to the uninitiated out there, how much smaller is that than a regular nuclear power plant? And how? what's the key uh, driving force of innovation behind that? Why is it so unique and different? And why is it so, uh, why is that potentially the future of nuclear? Well, a, a conventional nuclear power station is typically something like 2,000 megawatts to four, 5,000 megawatts. And that's typically two nuclear reactors of something like 1,200 or 1,500 each. And you get then the economy of scale, which is always the traditional way of thinking, but they are expensive. They take a while to build. And all of those ones need water cooling, meaning a lot of water, which means on the ocean or on very big lakes like Lake Baikal or something equivalent to that. Now, South Africa is a large country. South Africa is the same size as the whole of Western Europe added together. Uh, I live in Pretoria, and the distance between Pretoria and Cape Town is the same as Rome to London. We've got a lot of mining operations deep inland where we don't have water. South Africa is a water-poor country inland. So it was decided to build a small modular reactor. Now, small modular means 
under 300 megawatts for a reactor as against the sort of 1500 size that they're going to now. Um, and the idea is that you can build such a thing with one control room and on that control room you can add up to 10 reactors. So you get the versatility of being able to put it wherever you like because the reactor is gas cooled using helium gas. So you're not constrained to be near water, so you can take the reactor to the mine or to an industrial complex, whether that is in northern Canada and the ice and snow, or whether it's out in the desert in Saudi Arabia or something like that. We deliberately designed it like that. Um, well, what, what uh, what's the what's the reception in South Africa and throughout Africa? I mean, are people worried? They say, "Oh, look at Chernobyl," or "Oh, look at Three Mile Island," or "Oh, look what happened in Japan." How do you respond to that with the fear? Because nuclear energy is the one energy that's just shrouded in fear. Absolutely, and the reason for that is that the the anti nuclear green activists did a really good hatchet job over the years and spread all sorts of fear around. In the case of Fukushima, how many people died from radiation at Fukushima? The answer is zero. How many got injured uh, from radiation? The answer is zero. How much private property was harmed? The answer is zero. Fukushima was not a nuclear accident. Fukushima was a conventional industrial accident where it cost a fortune for the owners because the plant got smashed up. But it certainly wasn't a nuclear accident. And so there's been a lot of uh, fear. What's happened with the small modular reactors is that we've designed them to be um, what's called passive safety, have passive safety in them. That means you use the laws of physics in your favor. If something starts to go wrong, you let gravity pull us the safety features into place and so on. In the case of our one, it will rise up to a maximum of 1,600 degrees Celsius should anything go wrong, the worst thing go wrong. The reactor structure has been designed to take 2,000. So our sort of in-house joke is if the worst of the worst goes wrong, what you do is you all go down to the pub for a beer and you sit and you compose the, the letter to the CEO telling him what happened and you just wait for a week. <laughs> the reactor will, over 48 hours, say, heat up. It'll just sit there and then over the next four or five days, it'll just cool itself off. So you, you, don't, you don't do anything. You don't have a Fukushima or Chernobyl type of situation where it starts to get out of hand and you need significant intervention. That was one of the design criteria as well. And, and so they're very, very safe. Also, you put the fuel in and it's the shape of a, it's a ball, like a cricket ball. And the fuel takes two and a half years or something to work its way through the reactor. In principle, you never have to turn the reactor off. You drop the balls over the top and they work their way through. And when one comes out of the bottom, it becomes spent fuel. Something like half a dozen of those balls will supply all the electricity for a family of four for 10 years. So the amount of fuel used is unbelievably small, which means the amount of high-level nuclear waste that comes out is unbelievably small. So these stories that you get from the the extreme greenies about, oh, the unsolved nuclear waste problem. There isn't an unsolved nuclear waste problem. It actually is no real problem at all. You just look after it professionally. The real unsolved problem is what to do with all the solar panels, what to do with all the wind turbines. <laughs> <laughs> That's the unsolved waste problem of the energy uh, era of today. Well, let me ask you this. In South Africa was in the news, I guess it was last end of last summer or maybe September. 
Uh, you were being praised for meeting your net zero climate goals. But then it turned out the only reason South Africa met it was unintentional blackouts. First of all, what's going on in South Africa? Is your electrical grid uh, overly burdened with green energy mandates? How much of it's nuclear? And what exactly yeah. happened? And should should just South Africans be proud that they're meeting net zero climate goals? Well, not quite. Uh, they weren't really unintentional blackouts. They were intentional blackouts. And we, we call it load shedding. What has yeah. happened is that because we were putting in wind and solar because of political inducements from other people, we have now got uh, inadequate electricity. There was also inadequate planning years ago. They were looking to build nuclear. We started on the nuclear program. All the green demonstrations and anti-nuclear caused the government to put it all on hold. That was back in about 2010. Uh, the nuclear that should have been built was never built. Now they've issued a new um, nuclear uh, directive that we're going to put another 2,500 megawatts in. But what happened is the country effectively ran out of electricity, and so they're short. So we have a system at the moment called load shedding, which means that the, the nuclear, well, the electricity authorities say on Monday between 10 a.m. and 12 a.m., we're going to switch the electricity off in the following suburbs. You can look it up on the internet when is your scheduled switch off time. And right. you know there's not, not going to be electricity then. So it doesn't just fail electricity. It's a huge nuisance. And many people are now getting around it by putting all sorts of other generators in to counter it. It certainly isn't an irritation. So hopefully we get out of that. Now, it's interesting if you look into Europe, for example, that the UK ran out of electricity three or four times last year. Countries like Germany have run out of electricity. The difference being they have wealthy neighbors and neighbors with power. So when the UK has run out of electricity, it hauls more under the ocean from Norway, hydropower, it hauls in nuclear power from France. South Africa has no big neighbors that we can just pull megawatts of power in from the neighbors and say, well, we'll help you when you're in need. We're an electricity island. So we're becoming an illustration to people of what happens if you don't make jolly sure that you've got adequate we used to always run on a 15% reserve capacity, which is now zero. You know, we have no reserve. So in the past, if a um, generator broke, all you did was instantaneously switch on another one that was sitting in reserve, and nobody even realized that it had broken down. Now if you're running uh, and you've got enough and one breaks down, that's it, you're now short. So then they have to announce that we're moving into a, a load shedding stage. And uh, so that's what's causing a lot of the trouble. Certainly one of the sort of positives one can say is there's now an inducement to go and look at the serious energy that doesn't do that. And so there's quite a move towards nuclear. We find trade unions and all sorts okay. of organizations like that going into uh, pushing for nuclear power. All right. Well, thank you. We're out of time. Thank you so much, Dr. Calvin Kemp, South African nuclear physicist. Thank you for joining the show. This is Unleashed with Mark Morano. See you next time.